Deadwood Soundwell. Hello, and welcome to Living With Your Dog. I'm Charlotte Peltz, a certified animal behavior consultant. I would like you to be able to contact me with any questions you may have regarding particularly behavior issues, but I can address other things as well. One of my favorites is nutrition. So we're here to help you, and Nate will tell you how to get your questions to us. To get your questions to us, just email livingwithyourdog at gmail.com. That's livingwithyourdog at gmail.com. And also, you can find Living With Your Dog on Facebook. Living with your dog, living with your dog, living with your dog with Charlotte. Hi, welcome to Living With Your Dog. I'm Charlotte Peltz, Certified Dog Behavior Consultant. Today, I'd like to present something from Dr. Sophia Yin. She's no longer with us, but she was a highly respected veterinarian and very well educated in behavior issues as well as vet medicine. And that's not typical of veterinarians. So this is, it presents itself with the question, what is the respondent? What is respondent behavior? And she says, this is from her, the geek answer. A respondent behavior is one that is automatically elicited by a stimulus. Example, your eye blinks because a puff of air hits it. That is a reflex. That is classical or respondent behavior. The puff of, puff of air is an unconditioned stimulus creating an eye blink that is an unconditioned response. All reflex, you don't need to learn it. There are unlearned responses. Some stimulus appears, the body responds. Food equals salivate. Loud noise, startle. Hand on stove, pull back your hand. Emotional responses fall under respondent classical behavior because the body is automatically responding to a stimulus. B sees a lion equals, uh, excuse me, bird sees a lion equals <laughs> bird is fearful. There are physiological responses to add up to what we would call fear. Okay, what is classical conditioning? And before I go on with this, we consistently here in the field of particularly positive reinforcement training is classical conditioning and operant conditioning. So she's saying that geek answer for classical conditioning, it pairs one stimulus with another to change the function of a previously neutral stimulus to one that elicits a respondent behavior. So let's do some, an example here because that gets kind of complicated. Clap your hands is a neutral stimulus. Puff of air, Unconditioned stimulus, eye blink, respondent behavior. Do that enough times and clapping your hands will elicit the eye blink. <laughs> okay, so okay. you clap your hands, neutral, doesn't mean anything. Puff of air, unconditioned response, a stimulus. Eye blink, respondent behavior. If you clap your hands often enough, it will get an eye blink. And this is something that goes back to, um, what's his name? <laughs> the vet of many years ago that studied with saliva for dogs and they could just if you present meat and they'd salivate and pretty soon it, it they could get them to do it with, with this kind of situation they didn't have to eat it they could just see it pavlov there you go and we say pavlov is always on your shoulder it's not that you can totally separate these things okay so 
If you do that enough times, clapping your hands will get an eye blink. You physiologically respond the same way as you would with a puff in the eye. In geek terms, the unconditioned stimulus of air puff has been paired with the conditioned stimulus of clapping your hands. So now the conditioned stimulus produces a conditioned response of eye blink. Yep, she says it's a mouthful. <laughs> and you get clapping hands, conditioned stimulus, eye blink, conditioned response. I hope you can see that we're not bribing an eye blink by clapping our hands. I purposely used a non-food example so you can see how it works with any respondent behavior. This is science. There are hundreds of studies replicating this phenomenon that respondent classical conditioning works is not just my opinion, she says. So what is counter conditioning? With counter conditioning, there is already a negative association with a stimulus. I'll say that again. With counter conditioning, there's already a negative association with a stimulus. Dog equals scary. Man in hat equals scary. People carrying things equals scary. Noise equals scary. This could be true of your dog or your neighbor's dog. Maybe not at all. Since there is an association that exists that is scary, we then want to pair something that has a positive, good feeling about it in order to change the respondent behavior that is elicited by the previously scary thing. Okay, let's start with the man in the hat. Stimulus, fear, respondent behavior. Now, just like in the clapping hands, pop of ear and eye blink, we want to change the respondent behavior elicited by the man in the hat. In other words, we want to change your dog's idea of the man in the hat no longer being scary, okay? We, we want to change it from being scary to no longer being scary. First, we want to use desensitization to avoid the fear response, staying far enough back so that the dog is aware of the scary thing, but not yet afraid of it. It looks like this. Man in a hat, stimulus that is far enough away to not elicit fear, but close enough to be noticed. Food, the unconditioned stimulus, yum, happy feeling because of the food, respondent behavior. Do that enough times, and the man in the hat will elicit it, yummy, happy feelings. And that's what we want, okay? Man in the hat, continued stimulus, yum, happy, conditioned response. In counter-conditioning, desensitizing, the dog does not have to perform any behavior to get the food. The very positive stimulus of food is just getting paired with the scary man in the hat in order to change the reflective response to the scary man in the hat. I think some of the confusion as to what we are doing with counter-conditioning and desensitizing is because we also use food in operant conditioning. While it looks like the same thing, they are serving completely different functions in the two types of conditioning. Bribing, you are not getting the dog to do anything. All you are doing is pairing a scary thing with a great thing to change the dog's emotional response. Since the dog isn't actually doing any behavior, by definition of the word bribe, if you are doing counter-conditioning and desensitizing, you cannot be bribing. And how is respondent conditioning different from operant conditioning? Respondent conditioning deals with reflexive behaviors only. Emotions and responses that we are born with. Sit, down, bark, lunge. None of these are respondent. What we are doing is pairing one stimulus with another to change the function of that stimulus. So if you pair a stimulus with the function of fear, 
with the stimulus, with the function of happy yum in the right way, you change the function of the scary man from fear to happy yum. And if we're talking in terms of, now this is respondent, okay? Operant conditioning deals with behaviors that we have voluntary control over and that are evoked for, through reinforcement. Behaviors will increase as a result of being reinforced after a behavior and abated through punishment. Behaviors will decrease as a result of being punished after a behavior. Dog learns that their behavior has consequences and behave in the future according to those consequences. I ask dog to sit, dog sits, I give dog a treat. The above example is positive reinforcement and the dog will be more likely to increase or maintain sitting behavior in the future. Note, neither operant nor respondent conditioning is a bribe. A bribe is giving something valuable to someone in order to get them to do the behavior. You give a bribe or promise of one before the behavior to get someone to do it. Then she says, do I ever bribe? Sometimes I use a lure to get a behavior, which could be considered a bribe. However, I very quickly fade the lure. So I am doing operant conditioning, providing a consequence after the behavior. If luring is the most efficient way to initially get a, be get a behavior, I do it. I hold a treat above a dog's head to get them to sit then reinforce the sit with the treat. I will typically fade a lure within three or four trials. If I misjudge or get surprised and a dog goes over threshold, I may bribe by tossing treats all over the ground to get them to drop their head and eat the treats instead of barking and lunging. And hang on, this may blow you away a bit, she says. You are doing some counter conditioning without desensitization there because scary thing brought treats. You are not reinforcing the bargaining barking and lunging behavior, you are calming them down. But that's not a long-term solution. That's an emergency management situation. For some reason unknown to me, many people use only the emergency management situation and claim that's all counter-conditioning desensitizing is doing. Remember, the number one goal for dogs who are fearful is to keep them feeling safe. And that means we strive to manage their environment so that while they are learning different responses through counter conditioning and desensitizing and different behaviors through positive reinforcement, they always feel safe and never go over threshold. She was a genius, but something that's really, really difficult. And I had a, a situation this week with somebody who wanted some help with their dog. And the understanding of what reinforcement is, is often very difficult. Reinforcement, you tell the dog, I told him, so he said, I told the dog over and over and over again to stop doing that, quit doing that, that, you know, how, how come this dog cannot finally get it? And when I said, you're reinforcing it, I am not, <laughs> I'm not. Well, the reality is that if what you do, the behavior is repeated after that, you reinforced it. So dogs, it's not abnormal for dogs to jump. They do it all the time. And there are a lot of good reasons for it as far as they're, they can, they're concerned. If you tell the dog to stop doing it, you push them off, you, you holler, you scream no, and they jump again, you reinforce the behavior. No getting around it. That's just the way it is, folks. And that's very difficult. I told him over and over and over again, I don't care how many times you tell him, the dog jumped on you again. You reinforced it. You trained the dog to jump on you. I did not. People will insist that they didn't do it. 
And the reality is there. You just have to observe it. And I remember seeing that with my daughter, a veterinarian. They do not study behavior in vet school. They don't study nutrition. They don't study behavior. That's not to say that they may not have encountered it, but they are not qualified unless they do a lot of studying afterwards. So a veterinary behaviorist, I believe, has four additional years of school and education before they can declare themselves a veterinary behaviorist. So I can recall at some point when I had first gone up to Oregon and my daughter's adolescent dog jumped on her and she pushed her off. And I said, you just reinforced it. I did not. <laughs> okay. End of discussion. <laughs> so we don't go there. Pick All your right. battles. Yeah, yeah, pick your battles, pick your battles. So it's it's very difficult for people to, to get the point that they may be responsible for it. And although, you know, she said there's a lot of geek information there, if you're, if you're listening to what she has to say, you may get an inkling about what is actually happening with your behavior and your dog's behavior. And this is true whether it's with people or horses or whatever. It's a scientific reality, folks. It doesn't go away. You're not. And the other thing, remember bribing, which too many times people will say, oh, they're cookie pushers. They're just bribing. The bribe comes before. Have I ever bribed just like her? Sure. For example, let's say I'm pretty sure my dog is doing quite well with an off-leash recall. And by golly, we're out there and she's busy doing something and she's not responding. Am I afraid to start tossing treats to get her to come to me? Not on your life. <laughs> I'm not on I am going to do whatever I can to get her back and safe. And then we'll work again on training. So it's, and luring, which is, a lot of people will do that. I am not against luring. There are some, some trainers who are just absolutely dead against any kind of luring. I think sometimes to get the beginning of a behavior for example, lying down for dogs, a particular dog is, is a little insecure in an environment. A down position is not a safe position. They want to be up so that they can move and get away from whatever danger they think may be there. So I have not, without a question of a doubt, I have very oftenly, often lured a dog into a down under certain calm, safe conditions, not when it was a life-threatening situation. And then you have to get rid of the lure very quickly because it's like a, a fish following a lure. They just get caught, but they're not learning anything. It's just a matter of getting some movement started. Uh-oh. You froze. Hello. Between a sound and a behavior. Yes. You froze there for a second, but I don't think we missed anything. Okay. Well, it's the idea is to get a connection between a sound and behavior. Dogs don't understand English. They don't understand Spanish. They don't understand Chinese. They make associations between a sound and a behavior. It used to be, and this is the type of training that I learned. It was the only kind available way back in the Stone Age. You taught a dog to sit by pushing on their butt and yanking up on the choke chain. Right. And they sat. They weren't necessarily happy about it, but they mm -hmm. sat. The reality is we don't teach dogs to sit. It comes part of their program. They learn how they do that unless they've got physical issues. They, they will lie down on their terms. They'll sit on their terms. They'll stand on their terms. That what we want is to be able to cue it for our convenience. And that is making an association. 
So initially, for example, one might simply see a dog beginning to squat into a sit position and just as the butt is about to touch the ground, say sit. If you do it enough times, pretty soon the dog is going to make a connection. How often that happens depends very much on your dog, the conditions, the distractions around you, the breed of dog. Some dogs are not that interested in pleasing you. Other dogs knock themselves out to make you happy. So we have to think in terms of what the conditions are. For example, teaching stay, there are three conditions. There's distance, there's uh, distraction, and there is duration. They all have to be taught separately. If you're trying to teach your dog to stay in position, you're going to address distance, duration, distraction in separate individual situations, with distractions being the most difficult part of the program. And what would be a distraction? And I would often ask this, well, walking away, that's, that's, that's PhD level for beginner dogs. A distraction, if you have been standing in front of your dog, teaching them to stay, might be to step one foot back. Wow, look at that, the dog stayed. So if the dog did not stay, the dog is not secure yet to whatever you had been doing until then. So these are the things that we have to learn as compared to the old school, which was just punish them. You know, what do we care? Punish them. You were bad, wrong, bad dog. Now we're thinking in terms of what is the dog actually learning and how can we scientifically improve the situation? So I hope that helps people with any yeah. of that at all. That is pretty scientific, but I think you boiled it down for us uh, non-scientific folk pretty there well. Yeah, we can make the science very livable, no question about it, but it is science. And I think the important thing there is it's not because I've always done it that way. I mean, I've done it for 20 years and therefore I'm <laughs> going to do it again. It is based on science. And I really like that. I really like that. Yeah, no kidding. And I, I really liked her really simple fact of the whole point is to keep the dog safe. That's right. Uh, and, and, and the other thing about this is happy. Yeah. When I was teaching punishment-based classes, and of course, I wish I could set the clock back and say that never happened, but I cannot do that. Um, there were not a lot of happy dogs in smiling faces. When I switched to positive reinforcement training, tails were wagging and people were smiling. Yep. And dogs were eager. Instead of them seeing the leash and going the other way, they were running saying, good, we get to do it again today. Yippee. Okay, here we go. And it's, <laughs> it's a whole different mindset. It's not, I told you to do it, therefore do it. It's, right. let's do this. And for example, I changed from saying heel to let's go. Now, heel has a place in, in my mind, a very formalized position that's used in obedience competition. Stylized at your side at a particular location. The head is, the shoulder is right next to your leg, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't need that if we're going for a walk. I simply want the dog to respect the length of the leash and not pull on it. And so I switched to let's go, meaning we're in this together instead of you do it. It's not the heel from the, the sergeant at arms. It's this is us. Here we go. Let's have some fun doing it. One little change drastic difference it's that's very well stated mm -hmm. i mean right. smiles smiles yeah. and wagging tails yeah yeah i mean that's huge that's yeah. huge 
you know, dogs had run to see the leash instead of running the other way. Oh, dear, here she comes again. <laughs> okay, how about something from Dr. Judy Morgan? I'm, I'm a huge fan of hers. And this one is from, she does uh, the Dr. Morgan's Friday Five, which I encourage all of you to sign up for. It is once a week on Fridays, get that part. <laughs> and there are five different things that she presents, not all of which you're going to find useful, but many of them you will. So uh, this particular Friday Five was fear of fat. Some pet parents are afraid to incorporate fat into their pet's diet. I see this mostly with owners that have experienced a pet with pancreatitis. Cooked fats that have been oxidized can cause pancreatitis. Pets with pancreatitis can also be more sensitive to sources of fat like fish oil. This doesn't mean that your pet has to permanently be on a low fat diet. In fact, a diet lacking fat can be harmful to your pet. You may notice their coat becomes dry and brittle. They shed excessively or their weight may be unstable. Fats are a necessary part of the diet. Adult dogs need at least 5% dietary fat in their food to absorb fat-soluble vitamins, while puppies need at least 8% dietary fat. Coconut oil is easy on the pancreas, is good for inflammation in the gut, and supports coat and brain health. And I give that to Angie every night. She gets a, a spoonful of that in her dinner. Fish oil, and you, you, you know, listen to me, you know I'm a huge, huge fan of omega-3s. Fish oil high in omega, omegas, which are anti-inflammatory and good for heart, joint, brain, and skin health. If your pet struggles with liquid fish oil, I recommend an encapsulated version starting at half the recommended dose and working your way up. I supplement both coconut and fish oil for my own pets, she said, in addition to the natural raw animal fat present in their food. I see so many homemade diets online that are extremely deficient in fat contact. And that is one of the reasons I made my course. If you need to feed your pet a low fat diet to get through a bout of pancreatitis, make sure you find ways to incorporate healthy raw fats back into their normal diet. So this is interesting because my vet friend Kitty is into uh, a keto diet and it's, it, promotes, it promotes fat. That is very important. What is not important for us. Excuse me a minute. <laughs> Angie, that's enough. Angie, see somebody outside. What dogs and people do not need is sugar. And sugar is the big, big ingredient in dry dog food. It's carbohydrates, which translates to sugar. And that's the, that's the element that is so unhealthy for us and so unhealthy for them. But fat is essential. It's really, really important. And she, she went on, uh, Kitty went on the, the keto diet after years of having serious health problems. She weighed over 200 pounds. She lost 80 pounds in one year wow. on a basically meat fat diet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, that's huge. So healthy raw fats are good for our dog. Uh huh. Are are the healthy raw fats? Is that the coconut oil and the fish oil? Or are we talking like fat from bone and and the, what's in well, the they're meat? They're both. Stuff? So the I I give Angie for omega threes. She gets um, 
I give her phytoplankton, but for recommendations in general to dog owners, I recommend krill oil. That's what I take. That's the omega-3. And coconut oil for the things mentioned, the the coat, the immune system, uh, there are just benefits that come from it, heart. So she gets both of those on a daily basis. Did I answer your question or not? Half of it. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the other half is uh, as a dog owner who is giving my dog raw bones there's gonna or or like even in the ground beef there's those and it depends on what percentage of ground beef right, to fat right, you get right should so i be cons- is that good are those good fats yes those are good fats now obviously when we're talking fat in the ground beef you're getting one kind of fat if you're buying feedlot beef okay then if you're buying range-fed beef fat. Hmm. So we're talking in terms of the health issues. Now, I'm not suggesting that that all you can you can dare to feed is, is range-fed beef because most of us can't afford it for ourselves. But when it comes to the sources of fat, I really discourage as as pos- as hard as I can, I discourage giving those bones that are what we traditionally think of as dog bones. They're marrow bones and the whole center is fat. That's not what I want the dogs to have. Okay. I want them to have raw meaty bones. There's no meat on a marrow bone. Raw meaty bones means there will be some fat. Mm -hmm. That's just bound to be the case. But the variety of meats that she gets, pork, for example, there's fat in pork meat. There's no question about it. Um, Ground turkey, not very much fat. Not very much fat. Um, I don't give her, I don't get any beef for her. She gets um, chicken backs that have a little bit of fat. Most of the time, the chicken backs, if you buy them in large quantity, there's a huge glob of chicken fat in there that I have to throw away. It's way too much fat for her, for uh, most dogs. If you've got a hardworking dog that's burning up a lot of energy, that is probably okay to give it to him. But I don't think in general that's the case. So I think fat serves a number of purposes and the origin of it, it has importance. Okay. But you can also be giving too much fat, right? Absolutely. Uh-huh. So it's, again... If you're thinking in terms of what a raw diet should be, it should be the equivalent of, depending on your dog size, of the dog having eaten a whole rabbit, okay? Now, the rabbit that you buy for yourself that is groomed for human consumption, I'm sure it has a lot more fat on it than a wild rabbit that can't afford to carry that much weight around, and it takes a lot of effort to find food. So let's talk in terms of that wild rabbit. You're going to be getting some fat. There's got to be some fat there or the animal is dying. Um, You're going to have organs, kidneys, eyes, brains, whatever. So you're getting, the brain is almost all fat. All right. So uh, your dog is getting sources of fat in that animal. When we're doing a raw diet, not many of us have the option of getting all of those organs. Organs are vitally important and should be fed at least once a week. In the area where these listeners are located, the Red Redwood Meat Company sells ground up organs, probably in quantities larger than you can generally 
house, but arrange to share them with friends and divide it up into freezer. And it becomes inexpensive to do that. And it's a variety. And I believe that all of their beef is locally raised. I don't think they have anything that closely resembles feedlot beef. So right away, you're in a, in a good location. Heart is available, not terribly expensive, like two and a half dollars a pound. Liver's hard to come by. Uh, I can find chicken livers, but it's difficult to find uh, other animal organ livers. Mm. So it's, it's a, a variety of ways of getting the fat, but that it's in the most natural way as compared to just pouring fat into the bowl. Okay, did I get closer to an answer? Yes, you did. Thank you very much. Okay, so we don't, as Judy says, we don't need to be fearing fat so much. No, we certainly don't. And it is important for us as well. It's, it's essential. It makes food taste better. It makes us feel better. It's, um, it's the way to go, folks. And, and, and like you said, and like Judy said, a lot of people worry about fat when they need to be worrying about sugar. Absolutely for ourselves and for our poor dogs. Another thing that surfaces incidentally with dogs being fed kibble, which is high in carbohydrates, translated high in sugar, generally a minimum of 40%. And if you're buying something at the supermarket, you could be up into the 70 percentile bracket of carbohydrates. It's, it can definitely affect behavior. Think in terms of sugar for children, sugar high, it, yeah. I have seen it happen with dogs. I have seen it. Where what's what have you been feeding the dog? Well, we switched to this. Oh, okay. why not switch back to that? Behavior changed. So, so in a dog, when they eat a bunch of kibble, you've seen them get the sugar rush mm-hmm. and get the sugar crash. I haven't seen the sugar crash. Okay, probably doesn't happen very much because they're being fed a couple of times a day. So I don't. So they're riding that. high all the time. It could be, and certainly the crash, uh, it could be because dogs you know, generally will sleep away the afternoon anyhow. So right. is that part of a crash or is it just part of their normal you know, sleep away the heart, heart, you know, the mid- heart of the day? So yeah, Still, that's not healthy, though. It's not healthy. No, it's not healthy. So in the raw diet, she gets her fat in the way of the food that I provide for her. She gets it in the pork. She gets it in the, in the chicken livers. She gets it in... Whatever the source of meat is, there's a little bit in there. I mean, even ground turkey has a tiny bit in there. There's something around it. So she's getting what she requires. Certainly, the addition of the omega-3s contribute to healthy skin and immune system, et cetera. Uh, so you know, there's no question about what she looks the part. She does. Living with your dog, living with your dog, living with your dog with Charlotte. Okay. Um, Speaking of pet food, Dr. Uh, Dodds, I'm a a real fan of Dr. Dodds. That's Hemopet. You can sign up for her blogs, which don't fill up your mailbox to be sure. And she says, a few years ago, Hemopet discussed studies that demonstrated that certain pet foods did contain or did not contain listed or unlisted ingredients on the packaging. Now, thanks to advances in DNA technology and a, and a driven, dedicated, and determined research team led by, Dr., by Sarah Durnham Cheatham, a PhD, the world found out how extensive and horrifying 
pet food adulteration actually is. We knew it was bad, but just didn't realize the extent of the problem. Seriously, Dr. Da said, our jaws dropped and our eyes became wide open. Oh, boy. And that's from 19, that's from 2021 at Hemopet. And there was the opportunity to click on for read more. We do not have, thank you to FDA, definitions for the ingredients in dog food. And I've talked about this before. If you think chicken, there is a definition for chicken that is found in the stores that sell to human beings. There is no definition for chicken when it comes to what goes into dog feed. And the FDA will not allow the definitions to happen so that we know what it is. They do not enforce the laws. The law states that animal sources that go into dog food should not be dead, dying, down, or diseased. They should be slaughtered for that purpose. It doesn't happen. They're from, from Susan Fixton's reports, the food about uh, pet food person. I've seen these horrifying photographs of truck trailer loads loaded with carcasses hanging off the edges, parked outside waiting to be hauled in to the, the, the area that processes them. They hardly qualify as not being down, dead, dying, or disease. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. How about something for the kitty cats? <laughs> it's really important for us to recognize that so many of dog family, dog owner families, have cats as well. And for that, while this is the talk about dogs, <laughs> I really think that every once in a while I have to throw something out for you, kitty owners. Whether you happen to, I have that, I've had some people say, I only have cats. I only have cats, but I listen to your show anyhow. So <laughs> for those people, the benefits of seafood for cats and why quality matters. And this is from the Animal Wellness Magazine. Here's why it's important to avoid low quality seafood diets when shopping for your cat and what to look for in a brand. Many people wonder whether they should feed their cat a seafood-based diet, and if so, what kind of seafood is healthiest for them to eat? Unfortunately, many people feed their cats seafood but neglect to make sure it is of the highest quality. Low-quality seafood may contain preservatives, ethoxyquine, toxins, mercury, and may be cooked at high temperatures, which depletes the benefits of the seafood itself. In addition, the lower quality often means the cuts of meat are coming from heads, tails, and intestines which don't contain as many dietary benefits. How to determine quality. So how do you know if a seafood-based cat food is low quality? There are some key indicators to watch for. First, if the label advertises meat, but does not specify what kind of meat, this is a red flag, as there is no guarantee that you're getting actual seafood. When buying low-quality seafood, there's always a risk the seafood product may contain other meat proteins, such as chicken fat, which can be detrimental to the health of your cat, said Sierra Jones-Vasos, communications coordinator for St. Jean's Cannery. Be sure to look for brands that label their foods specifically as fish-based. 
Another thing to check is whether meat is listed as the first ingredient. If it's not, skip it, but don't stop there. When choosing a high quality seafood, owners should also make sure the species of the fish is listed, as well as the country of origin of the fish and other ingredients, says Sierra. And keep in mind that if it's low quality, the nutritional label won't be AAFCO compliant, won't include taurine, which is essential, and won't properly separate ingredients. Why is quality so important? The difference between low quality and high quality seafood is huge when it comes to nutritional benefits. In short, the better the quality, the healthier it will be for your cat. Seafood improves the state of the brain, says Shayla Cusworth, business development manager for Healthy Shores. It contains omega-3 fatty acids and sufficient consumption of this nutrient contributes to proper brain development. In addition, high quality seafood promotes heart health, increases calcium and phosphorus to support bone growth in kittens and milk production in their mothers, helps the skin retain moisture promoting a healthy coat, promoting a healthy coat, contains selenium, a powerful antioxidant that has a positive effect on immune system function, and contains vitamins D, B, and A. If you feed your cat a seafood-based diet, be sure to assess the label to ensure it's high quality. After all, she deserves nothing but the best. Now, do you know there's something about this particular article about seafood and cats that puzzles me? Hmm. Cats evolved as desert animals. There aren't a lot of ponds out there with, with fish in them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so it, it's very interesting that people seem to associate feeding fish with their cats. But we've done it's, that for years. I know. And I just think it's crazy. I'm not saying don't give it to them, but to be promoting seafood for cats <laughs> really? I mean, are you serious? So in the dog terms that we use fish, it would not be considered part of the ancestral diet of the cat. Of course not. Huh. We evolved as desert creatures. And the, the reason it's so important to be aware of that evolutionary process is first, they have not been, um, civilized that's not the word they have they haven't been domesticated domesticated for very long compared to dogs dogs maybe go back thirty five thousand years or more cats maybe four or five thousand hmm. so they're not as domesticated they evolved getting the moisture they require from the kill that they made and ate so out in the desert there were surely mice and other little animals that they fed on. And that's where they got their moisture. Chances are that early evolutionary uh, individual cat never saw a pool of water in its entire life. So we are talking in terms of a genetic program that if you're feeding dry food, your cat is never ever going to take in the adequate amount of moisture it requires to properly digest it. So there are a good number of health problems, particularly true with males, because their way to eliminate is a, a much more reduced avenue than it is with the females, and they can become, uh, have obstructions, which is life-threatening and expensive to deal with. So it seems to me that understanding the evolution of the animal is important when we come down to what we're going to put for them to eat. And that's true for dogs. Dogs are genetically almost like wolves, but they evolved as scavengers. Therefore, 
there's, there's not a lot of meat at the dump. So they did manage to survive on the variety of foods that they could find at the dump. And genetically, they've actually evolved with a gene that permits them better digestion of carbohydrates than wolves can do. What I think is interesting about that is once that surfaced a couple of years ago, it was translated into now they require carbohydrates. Really? (laughs) Really? That they can means they need it? I don't think, I think that's a, a huge leap. That they can means that they needed to, but that doesn't mean that's what they need to eat. So it's, again, uh, having some concept of species-specific food, I believe, is really important. And that's what what Susan Thixton is about on a lot a big level when she's the truth about pet food woman. I believe she feeds commercial dry food to her dogs, which I have a little difficulty understanding. Whereas Karen Becker, Dr. Karen Becker, and she and Susan often are, are at the same meetings of the AFCO and the FDA. And Dr. Susan uh, Becker, uh, Dr. Karen Becker, definitely promotes species-specific food. And there's no question about that. And her website or her blog is, is worth signing up for as well, for sure. So, uh, And what is, I'm trying Dr. to remember. Karen Be- Dr. Karen yeah, Becker. Her yeah, blog no, name. I don't remember. Uh I can't either, but I can tell you that she does a bunch of videos. She's, uh, she's posting videos on YouTube all the time. So is Judy Morgan. Lots oh, of good okay. stuff. Lots of good information. Okay. Well, so why don't you forward those to me periodically? Okay. Okay. I'll do that. Yeah. All right. Great information. Lots of fun. Um, and that's something else. That's interesting. Too. Yeah. That's, that's also something that's very interesting is they're, they're being able to make fun of something that's really serious to make it a little bit easier, you know, a spoonful, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. For sure. And and it and it really helps. Instead of it being, you know, finger pointing and and fist shaking and all of that, uh, trying to scare you to death, um, they're providing information in a way that you're more willing to accept it and even maybe apply it, which would be particularly nice. Yeah. <laughs> they're using positive reentrain positive reinforcement training on us. Absolutely. For sure. Works with people. There's no question about it. Okay. And as we've learned, we, we have a lot of homework to do. I mean, we have a ton of stuff that we need to be aware of. Uh, like your first topic, uh, we need to be aware of our body language and stuff like that when we're Absolutely. training. Absolutely. For sure. No question about it. Wow. You know, if, if, if you've been accustomed to just tipping forward slightly when you say down to your dog and you don't tip forward, I can almost guarantee the dog will not go down. Why? Wow. They're body language creatures. And they have observed your body language more than they have paid attention to the sound of the word you're throwing at them. Yeah. And then, okay, that's a bad dog. She knows what she's supposed to do. Yeah. She did what she was supposed to do. You just didn't do it right. <laughs> it was you that didn't do yeah, it right. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wait, have we got time for one more? Yes, we do. Okay. How about eight tips for dealing with a pet with behavioral issues? What to do if your dog or cat has a behavior problem? And this was reviewed by Chloe Williams. And it's getting advice. Make sure you're getting advice from the right places. This is a biggie because unfortunately, there is a lot of incorrect and outdated advice out there. 
There can even be inaccurate information in top-selling dog training books. One thing to do is to make sure you only take advice from people who use reward-based methods because aversive methods have risks for your pet's welfare. For more on this, you can see her previous post, Why Dogs with Behavior Problems Deserve Compassion. And I also have that from Chloe. Okay, number two, take a trip to the vet in case of medical issues. Anytime there is a sudden change in your pet's behavior, it's important to see your vet. A common example for both cats and dogs is if your house-trained pet starts to have accidents in the house. It's important to find out if there's a medical cause, such as an infection. Another example is pain, because pain can also be behind some behavior issues, such as not wanting to be petted. If you've noticed signs that might indicate pain, such as your cat no longer wanting to jump up high, your dog not wanting to jump on the sofa like she used to, or your pet being reluctant to go up and down stairs, mention it to your vet while you're there. Keep learning about your pet. Three, see difficulties as training opportunities. Pets aren't robots, so it's inevitable that any training or behavior plan will progress with ups and downs, and it's normal to have training setbacks from time to time. The key thing is to have good plan and stick to it. For a fearful dog or cat, this will involve protecting them from whatever it is they are afraid of while you work on the training. With reactive dogs, it's easy to make a mistake. Someone comes to the door too close. Someone comes too close and lets the dog run up to you. Seeing setbacks like this as a training opportunity as a training opportunity is one of the strategies that can help people stick to the plan. Understand Number four, understand that strong feelings are a normal reaction to a situation. There are a lot of negative emotions that can come with having a pet with a behavior issue. People report feeling frustrated, stressed, nervous, angry, sad, and like they let their pet down. And there's a quote there, a reference to Williams and Blackwell. The good news, people also express a lot of love for their pet despite having issues. Five, keep learning. These days, we keep learning more and more about dogs and cats. So even if you grew up with pets or you last got a pet 15 years ago, what we know now has changed in that time. If your pet has behavior issues, it's especially important to get up to date on current knowledge about animal behavior and how pets learn. Eight, celebrate the small successes. Keep track of changes so you can look back and see progress. When you're busy coping with a behavior issue, it can be hard to see the progress that's happening right under your nose. If you keep track, like in a diary, then you can look back and see how far you've come. And every step towards resolving the issue is worthy of celebration. Maybe your dog used to be reactive when 100 meters from another dog, but now can be 75 meters away and they're so happy. Or perhaps your two cats are getting on better. If you learn to celebrate the small successes, it's helped you work towards the bigger ones. Seven, learn how to deal with un wanted advice. Hmm. Unfortunately, a lot of people feel they want to give advice on other people's pets. A good response can change from saying what you need, put your dog on a leash, getting out of the area, telling people thank you and turning away to end the conversation or saying, we don't do things like that anymore. Of course, you can try ignoring the person or if you have to talk to them, completely change the subject. (laughs) Just because someone erroneously claims your dog is trying to be the alpha doesn't mean you have to reply. That doesn't mean you can't reply with, did you see X on TV last night? (laughs) Or isn't it hot today? (laughs) What if it's a family member who you need to get on your side because they are partly responsible for caring for your pet? Try the phrase, are you willing to, which can commonly get a positive response. For example, are you willing to walk the dog early in the morning while it's quiet? 
Or would you be willing to take five minutes to play with the cat with the wand before you feed her? Don't, and number eight, don't make sudden decisions about euthanasia or rehoming. In the worst moments, sometimes it can feel like there are no choices, but often there are. And maybe once you've had time to reflect, things won't seem quite so bad. If something happens, like your pet bites someone, don't make decisions in the heat of the moment. Do what's necessary to keep everyone safe. If needed, shut your dog in another room while things calm down, but take your time before making any big decisions. Consider going back to point number one, getting help. The good news is that the right help can make a big difference. So there you have it. That's a good list. Mm -hmm. Things to remember. I really like the uh, see difficulties as a training opportunity. That's always been one of my things. Yes. Uh, Never let a teaching opportunity go away. Yeah. And there are people that say, you know, I've, I've been training dogs for 20 years. Well, there's 20 years of experience and there's one year's experience 20 times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that goes with, a, with my other favorite one. Number five, keep learning. Yes. Yes. There's always something more to learn. We have, you know, it's, it's, it's very strange that it's only been maybe 15 years, maybe less that a, a serious amount of attention has been given to trying to understand our dogs. Yeah. It's like we're dogs, you know, I mean, you know, everybody's had a dog. We're not all about dogs. We have learned so much more about them. We've, we've learned that they are so sentient. And most of the time, dog owners over the years have known that. But it's only re- it's reaching the scientific level of awareness that we have going on now that of all of these things that that these dogs are capable of doing what they're feeling what they're telling us uh, it's and and some things are never going to change and it's really interesting the other day i watched somebody you know going 50 miles an hour down the road with the dog's head hanging out which i do not recommend incidentally oh, yeah. it's very dangerous dogs lose their eyes from just an insect hitting them but that same dog if you blew in her nose when she was standing there, you could risk a nip on your nose. She'll still stick her head out the door, the car door window when she's go- it's going 50 miles an hour. It's like, all right, that's a dog. But what are we going to do now? <laughs> oh, boy. Well, there is plenty of resources in order to keep learning. We present a ton of them every week. Uh, our favorites, you know, Judy Morgan, Susan Thixton, Dr. Jean Dodds. Ian Billinghurst. Uh-huh. Um, and speaking of today, as we do a wrap up, Dr. Sophia Yen, who is no longer with us, unfortunately, but uh, really got down into the scientifics of it. I mean, respondent behavior, classical conditioning, counter conditioning, operant conditioning. Desensitizing. Mm-hmm. These are all, I mean, that's some scientific stuff, but sure. it's newly newly uh it's it's new to the field as you just said you know within the last 15 years we've been thinking like this and it really helps our relationships yeah. with our dogs absolutely uh, and it, their it health begins, yeah it's not just do it because i told you it's do it because this is going to work for us you know this works for both you and me you get what you want i'll get what i want but it's understanding how dogs learn they don't yeah. see the world like people do on a lot of levels. We have a lot of things in common. A lot of our body functions are very similar. 
but there are important differences and and it's it's important for us to learn more and more about them in order to improve our ability to communicate with one another yeah and a couple of the things from that article from dr sophia yen it's not bribing it's no. science there you go there you go <laughs> and and the whole point is the number one goal is to keep our dogs safe that's right and then from dr judy morgan and her friday five which comes out every friday which is uh, five little tidbits of information mm-hmm. that she has for us always good stuff and this one we discussed was the fear of fat you do not need to have a fear of fat fat right. is good unless you ha- unless your dog has health issues like pancreatitis or something like that but otherwise fats are necessary some of the things that you can give your dog which charlotte gives her dog are coconut oil fish oil for those omega-3s and krill oil uh healthy raw fat so like the fat that's on a bone as i asked or the the fat that's in the 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 bits that are in the ground beef those that stuff is okay for your dog it's the sugar and the carbs that are not okay and guess where your dog guess where that your dog is getting the the sugar and the carbs from that dry dog feed yes indeed and uh we want to point out that organs are good organ meat is good for your dog charlotte says at least once a week give your dog organ meats mm-hmm. and then from dr gene dodds and Hemopet, another great resource pet foods do not always have all of the ingredients listed on the label right and we are we are every day we're learning more and more about the disgusting habits of the dog feed industry and thanks to people like Dr. Jean Dodds and Susan Thixton and her Truth About Pet Food. And Dr. Uh, Karen Becker. Yeah. Darren, it, thanks to them, we are learning more and more uh, about that nasty dry dog feed. Next up, about your cat. Living with your cat. The benefits of seafood from the Animal Wellness Magazine, which we found was really weird because, as Charlotte mentioned, cats come from the desert. <laughs> and I don't remember seeing too many fish in the desert. <laughs> but if you're going to be giving your cat a fish-based uh, diet, make sure that it is high quality. Make sure that it is high quality. The bad quality, low-grade fish can contain all sorts of different things which could result in health issues and then behavior issues. Yeah, and I think that you know, a fish-based diet is very misleading. I don't think that the cat should ever be getting a fish-based diet. There should be a variety. So giving some fish-based foods is fine when you're giving other foods as well, so that you get a multiple, multiple, a source of multiple um, opportunities for good nutrition. And that's true for your dog as well. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Thanks for reminding us on that. Yeah. As you often say with the dog foods, mix it up, mix it you up, bet. have a variety of foods. You bet. And lastly, we heard eight tips for dealing with behavior issues from Chloe Williams. And this was uh, a good list of eight. Get advice from a good source. Take a trip to the vet, especially if there's a sudden change in behavior in your dog. See difficulties as training opportunities. Understand strong feelings and like getting upset at your dog or getting frustrated is okay. It's going to happen. We're human. They're dogs. We get upset sometimes. Number five, keep learning. 
tons of resources out there as we've mentioned and as we bring to you every week keep learning celebrate small successes learn how to deal with unwanted advice that's a good one that's a good one one. yeah whenever you're walking your dog and have you tried this or you should do that oh you should don't get me started on that okay and then number eight (laughs) don't make sudden decisions especially when it comes to euthanasia or rehoming Lots of homework, lots of things to consider when we are living with our dog. Thank you for all this information, Charlotte. And before we head out, do you have any last words for us? I do. I do. Just give me a second. <laughs> Let me remind folks that you can email us at any time. We'd like to hear from you. Give us an email. Our email is livingwithyourdog at gmail.com. Livingwithyourdog at gmail.com. You can also find our show on Facebook. Okay. All his life, he tried to be a good person, and many times, however, he failed. For after all, he was only a human. He wasn't dog, said Charles Schultz. (laughs) (laughs) Charles Schultz, isn't that the Peanuts guy? That's him, yeah. All right. (laughs) (laughs) That's him. That's him. Living with your dog, living with your dog, living with your dog with Charlotte. Isn't that cool? Check out all the content brought to you by Redwood Sound Labs. Listen to the new show that will help you live a better life with your beloved pets. It handles topics like proper food, nutrition, positive reinforcement training, and more. Certified dog behavior consultant Charlotte Peltz welcomes your pet concerns and questions in Living With Your Dog. Zach and Matt are two veteran horror movie enthusiasts discussing their favorite and not-so-favorite films. Spoilers abound, so scary movie fans beware. Watch no evil. Charles is a Purple Heart recipient and cinematographer. Aaron is a professor and critical cultural scholar. Together, they explore the narrative, effective, and production politics of war cinema on the Real War Project. That's R-E-E-L, War Project. You can find all these shows wherever you find podcasts.